This is Audible. Harbor Audio is pleased to present this conversation between Jane Friedman, President and CEO of HarperCollins Publishers, and Jack Welch, former CEO of General Electric. Welch's newest book, written with Susie Welch, is called Winning. In it, he addresses the most difficult issues people face on and off the job and describes his core business principles. I'm Jane Friedman, President and CEO of HarperCollins Worldwide. And right now, I have just finished reading Winning by Jack Welsh with Susie Welsh. And I have just explained to Jack how I've gone through this manuscript and I have underlined and underlined and underlined. And I am a CEO and I'm learning all about how to be a better CEO from reading Winning. The first question I have for Jack is um, why Winning Now? And uh, how did it come to be? And how did you work with your co-writer, Susie Welsh? Well, let me start with the first one. Uh, we were out on the road uh, giving Q&A uh, sessions at a variety of different locations, sometimes to 300 people, sometimes to 5,000. And the questions were incredible. People were constantly asking me the real hard, nitty-gritty business questions. And it was during the time of some of the crises here, uh, the global scandals, and people had a down view of business. And winning wasn't a very good thought at the time. And I really felt that the millions of people that are out there working in the right way in the right time needed to have their questions answered, best I could do it. And it was time for a book that said why winning is good and why winning is the fundamental roadblock of building people's lives and how business is the engine of a society. And I try to make the case for that in here. As for working with my wife, that was a really great treat. I mean, uh, it was also the first year of our marriage, which is uh, which always uh, people laugh and say, how could you do that in your first year? Anyway, it was an incredible experience. Uh, we would talk for a week or so about a chapter. She would drag stories out of me that I had forgotten years back. She's a great editor and great writer, and she just kept pulling and pulling. And then after she got enough, she'd go sit down and write a first draft of a chapter. And that began a process. And we had second drafts, and third drafts, and fourth drafts, and fifth drafts, sometimes 20th drafts between the two of us, picking away, trying to get a concise story to answer the questions that people had asked us. Did you fight? No, it's amazing. And and people will never believe that story. We Did we uh, hold our ground on certain positions? Yes. Did we take um, uh, words seriously? Yes. She more than I did. And um, But we, in the end, uh, did not have what I would call a real fight. That's wonderful. Well, I know you, and I know Susie, and I know that both of you believe in candor. I think perhaps that may have helped uh, to stave off those arguments. Is honesty always the best policy? Well, I'm not talking so much about honesty. I'm, I'm talking about here about telling it like it is, seeing a business situation as it is. Uh, A lot of time is wasted, Jane, with people not wanting to face into reality, not wanting to deal with issues as they are, not wanting to confront weak colleagues, 
not wanting to uh, reward strong colleagues for the fear of hurting the feelings of weak colleagues. So there's a lot of things where candor could just speed the whole process up. Look, we got a bad situation. Let's dig in and, de and deal with it. And Joe and Mary aren't going to help us. Let's not use them. Let's get it done. I, I, I'm often w w with groups, and, they, and they're shocked by the fact that uh, they, within each other, they all agree that they know the answer. But no one's afraid to, everyone's afraid to say it for the fear of impacting others, looking foolish, any number of things. But getting it all on the table is a big deal. I couldn't agree with you more, and I do believe that uh, when the millions of people read Winning uh, and take it to heart, that candor is going to help all of us as CEOs. It is absolutely essential. But one of the other things that really uh, surprised me, although I now understand it completely, is when you say that you believe the head of human resources is as important as the CFO. That's, those are big words. Yeah, but I, but I live them. I lived them for 20 years as CEO, and I saw the bad. There isn't a CFO in the company that I work for that wouldn't consider his peer uh, as, C as HR manager equal to him in the organization. And there isn't an HR person that even thinks the CFO is close, probably. But um, look, if, you're feel if winning is about feeling the best team, getting the best players on the field, the best talent, the best writers for you, the best editors for you, or any, any, the best musicians in an orchestra. You need help as a CEO, as a leader, as a manager. You want another input, and you want somebody to feel, the guy counting the score, you know, how many uh, tech tickets were sold is important, but nobody's going to come if the players aren't any good. And so the HR person gets the right players on the field. Don't you think that the fact that for so many years HR was called personnel, that that may be why it's taking the HR director a little bit more time to get up to speed, that somehow it had a diminished role, but now it certainly is one of the top positions in the company. Uh, it's, it's, there's an anomaly there of what personnel was and now human resources is. Well, I, I think there's a little bit of that, but I, I think also uh, personnel uh, or, or HR as a training ground and, and, a, and a straight up place is not a great place. I mean, mm -hmm. you're doing the picnics and you're doing the, the, the company newspaper and you're, you're organizing the parties. I think that, for example, if, if I were in, in, in HarperCollins, I would take one of the most respected editors, writers, who had savvy, who, had, who could see around corners, who could, in fact, smell a phony a mile away. And I'd put that person, man or woman, right next to me as HR person. The organization would say, holy cow, Jane Friedman means it. She's brought so-and-so, who's the best at this, to do this. So you got to change the whole perception, because the perceptions in organizations have HR at such a low level. I, I have a story in the book where we had uh, 5,000 people, and I asked them, how many of you were, are perceived in your organization as a peer of the CFO? I didn't get 50 hands, Jane. So we've got to change a, and this is, 
I'm not talking just CEOs. I'm talking about the people that run divisions in HarperCollins. They have an HR person. They've got to take somebody that's a star. Fellow in G that was running HR for me was a plant manager. He had seen it all, negotiated with unions, done everything. He was a street guy. He knew everything. Makes such good sense, such good sense. The other thing that makes such good sense, as we are about to go into our own budgeting process, is what is this? You talk about in winning how you can really just eliminate so much wasted time, effort, charts, everything else, and just for the CEO to know what he or she wants, the division head to know what he or she wants, and to come in, have a realistic position, and go out 10 minutes later and say, let's do it. Well, I think the issue is this. There's this crazy ritual where it starts months ahead of time at the bottom with poor souls bubbling up numbers and putting them all together and uh, getting this book together with one objective, to come up with a low number to present to the, to the next level because for years we've made it clear that if you missed your number, you got punished. If you made your number, you were a hero. So there's a big exercise in minimalization, I call it. How little can we get away with? How, can, how little can we sell? Now, it, think of how different the dynamics of a meeting are. When you both come in and say, here's what I think I can do, but I need all these resources. Then you're arguing about making an acquisition, giving them more salespeople, uh, giving them more advertising money. And you can make those calls, but you're all talking about growing the business bigger. It's a much better conversation. You end up with the same number, you end up with the same place, but the dialogue is so much different. Instead of me trying to convince you how little I can do, I'm trying to sell you on, give me some resources to let me take my HarperCollins division to a level it's never seen before. The conversation is 180 from what it normally is. In the phony budgeting process where the lights go out and, and, and the slides go up, and the teams negotiate, and at the end, one team says you can give me 10, another team says you can give me six, and you end up with eight. You spend a whole day in a room. Silly. It's so interesting because you know Rupert Murdoch, who is my big boss. You know him very well. And um, I believe that he believes in your way of budgeting because our budget meetings are the most interesting meetings we have all year. It really comes down to conversation, to sharing, to stretching, to coming in with ideas that can then be expanded and exploited rather than just coming in and fighting for that sandbag number or on the other side fighting for something that really is not going to be achievable and just cause stress. And that's why you guys are growing. I mean, because people that, that think that way grow. I mean, Rupert could never sit through a grinded-out meeting negotiating. It's not his style. Absolutely right. In uh, winning, you uh, talk about eight aspects of leadership, and they are the aspects that one would expect of a leader. But what do you think about yourself? Do you exhibit all eight of them? Where do you fall short if you do? I personally don't think you do, but if you think you do. Um, and of the eight, do you have one that you think is the one that's absolutely the most critical, or is it a package? Well, I think it's a package, but uh, I think you absolutely, to be a great leader, have to energize people. I mean, in the end, you are a lone wolf 
And if, if you're managing a, a small grocery store with eight people in your store, you want those eight people turned on. You want them saying, good morning, Mr. Jones. Good morning, Miss Rogers. Thank you for coming in. You want every touch possible. So you want them to feel ownership and excitement and participate in the fruits of the place. So, I mean, I mean, if you're an energized and you can't execute, it isn't any good. But if you had to pick one, I'd, I'd want somebody that can excite the room, excite the team, and make them ready to take the hill. Well, there's no doubt that optimism and that ability to energize really can change the entire tenor of a company and lead that company to become a winning company. In reading winning, you talk so much about the 2070-10 rule, which you are yeah. famous for. And there are some people who have been um, critical of your 10, wipe them out. Uh, and the, but they have also felt that you're 70, that you really have spent a lot of time in your career building the 70. Um, I liken the 70 to the backbone of our business, the backlist of a publishing business, because that's what really keeps us going as we move the backlist, as we make the backlist stronger and as we sell more copies. Your 70 are people who you feel can move into the 20 to lead the company. Can you talk about how your this differentiation makes winners out of everyone? Yes, because if you take, you know, and, and the 2070-10, as I point out in the book, has been called everything from Darwinian to cruel to this and that. Uh, what it is, if it's understood... You can't have 2070-10 without having a company that practices candor and exhibits trust. Uh, you can't, and one of the things in my first book, where I talked about 2070-10 briefly, everyone out and did it. And they, and they got all kinds of trouble, lawsuits, everything else. As people said, wait a minute, I'm not in the bottom 10. Uh, I'm clearly not in the bottom 10. You, know, you, you told me I've been nice for 25 years. Well, you need a, you need a candid appraisal system in place before anyone implements this in any way. But let's take the bottom 10. People say, it's so cruel, you fire them. You don't fire them. You tell them they're going to have to leave within a year. Guess what? 75% of them go anyway. Who wants to hang around a place where you're in the bottom? Nobody likes to feel that way. But nobody's that. They might have even wondered if they were, but when they're told they are, they go. And they find better jobs, and they thank you for it. In the middle 70, you always give them bonuses. You always give them uh, not as much as the top 20, but you let them know you care about them. You let them know they're important. You outline their shortcomings and their strengths. You let them improve. And these 2070-10 designations are not locked in concrete. They are basically a point in time. So that point in time is how you look, but you can move. And somebody in the top 20 can't fall asleep up there and stay there. But you want your top 20 to know you love them. You want to pay them. You want to reward them in every way, in the soul and the wallet. You want to take care of them. And the bottom 10, what people do in businesses and in companies and in orchestras and in schools, schools in particular, I see in the New York City school system, the bad get too much attention. The lousy business, where does the CEO fly to or the manager? They go take care of their problems. And somebody's growing at 15% over here, you leave them alone. Well, maybe they ought to be growing at 30 
and you ought to be spending your time there rather than trying to fix the break-even or the small loss business. Same with people. Trying to fix a bad employee is a, is a loss proposition from day one. Part ways, do it fairly, don't humiliate the person, but get on with building great people. Don't hang around with people that aren't delivering or businesses that aren't delivering. Boy, are you sensible. You make it sound so easy. We all know that it's not so easy. But I must say that in, in listening to you, in reading Winning, uh, it all seems doable. And it all seems so right in terms of how one deals with people and with problems. When you talk about the top 20 and you talk about they're, they're the stars of the company. And um, one of the points that you make in Winning that I think is so essential is that if one of your star leaves, replace that star in, I think you say, eight hours, which I think is absolutely correct. Anyone who has lost a star has known that when you start losing time in replacing that star, everything tends to look dismal. Um, did you have to replace, I, have, I don't recall, did you have to replace many of your top 20, of the people in your top 20 throughout your career? A, a couple, and I, I'm, I use a couple in there as examples. Here's what happens when you don't. Everyone knows who the top 20 are, and I think you, you nailed it very well in your question. When the top 20 leaves, some people start to say, should I be leaving? Uh, what's going to happen to the company? Your job as a manager at any level is to say, they left, boom, right in behind them, another top 20, so that they, there's not a moment in security. They didn't matter. The company goes on the next day as if nothing happened. We've done that right in the transition from myself to my successor. A very good fellow left to become CEO of a big company, Albertsons. I know this the book. And he came in the morning to tell us, and at 4 o'clock we announced his replacement, and the next day the replacement was in his chair running the business, and a, a business that has 30,000 people was not leaderless for a moment. Any regrets about your career? You know, I've thought about that a thousand times, and the answer is no. I mean, I made mistakes. I did some things wrong. I did, I did nothing. I didn't do anything perfect everything perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I gave it everything I had. Uh, I mean, I, I went at it like a madman every day. I loved it. And uh, could I have done it better? Probably. But uh, I have no regrets about the way I did it. And winning is fun. Both winning. your life, the book, and everything else. It sure is, Jane. Thanks. Thank you. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.